Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on media and digital productions. Our second hour is something that we typically want to spend a little more time on. And today we'll be talking about all things WWDC, the Worldwide Developers Conference hosted by Apple. And we'll share our insights and predictions. And speaking of predictions, I see a lot of questions already in queue, Bill. Let's get this party started. Absolutely. And the first one comes in from Andy Carluccio in San Francisco, California. And he's referencing uh, Twit, This Week in Tech, the long-running technology show. And he notes Twit now uses Zoom for call-ins, meetings, collect video guests, Zoom phone for traditional phone callers. Off-air, they collect Zoom voicemails with auto transcripts. It's all run by Zoom OSC companion and breakouts. Thoughts on call-in show technology? Mitchell. Well, that's Andy, that's a big question with lots of layers. Um, sure, we'd love to see it all inside of Zoom, and it is there if you want to use it, but uh, it all boils down to latency. If you're doing calling, you need to be able to deal with latency because of the uh, communication back and forth, and Zoom does a pretty good job with that. Uh, the best way, if the call-in show, the traditional call-in show with a phone, um, some type of uh, Bluetooth-enabled uh, device can do that. Uh, Angry Audio makes that for uh, broadcasters and radio people. Uh, but again, that's a separate uh, application, a separate device, a separate hardware. I like the idea of it all living inside of Zoom. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, uh, ever since we got rid of uh, POTS line, so a lot of, even if the company says they're giving you a POTS line, a, PO, a plain old television system, uh, system uh, line, uh, it's not usually a POTS anymore. So the latency issue has really gone a kind of away because uh, even uh, you know, even a regular hard line has about the same latency as Zoom does at this point. Um, the I, I think that it was really interesting to see how Zoom is is kind of moving into this broadcast world very effectively. Um, you know, it's it. What's nice about as Mitchell said. What's nice about having it all in Zoom is that you can choose, I'm going to have a bunch of callers. Oh, the next time I want video callers. Oh, I, and, and you're not changing your entire pipeline every single time. It's not a new set of hardware. It's not a new set of something you can go from phone call in to video call in to even a roundtable discussion without leaving the platform. So I think that I think it's going to be very successful as, as we see it move forward. Harshit? Yeah, so I've been watching uh, the Tech Guy show for quite some time, and even with Twit, uh, the whole network, I've seen it, you know, the progression of Zoom coming in. And it's also a good thing to note that, you know, the trust in Zoom when we first started in the pandemic, we, we were kind of throwing all of these teams and Zoom and all these platforms. But I'm glad that people are able to still connect with Leo as Leo has retired from the radio bit, but still able to kind of run the show. So him and Micah run the show on Saturday or Sundays now. Uh, so that way he has Saturdays off. So with with the process of the call, we I remember it was like call.techguy or twit.tv or something like that. And um, with with having that link, it's still a little iffy for certain people because the type of callers that were calling in were sometimes elderly. But uh, just the fact that the process and the structure is there and Zoom, ISO, and all the other tidbits are making the, the process sound even easier uh, definitely makes it well worth of a show. And uh, go check it out. Maybe you guys want to ask a question to Leo. Next question. Next one comes to us from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. And Mike says, morning, everyone. In a production setting, does the panel recommend wiring the camera and or playback inputs to a video hub first and then out to the switcher or to the switcher first and then out to the video hub? And why? Thanks. Go ahead, Alex. 
in general, we're going to run the, the all of our video into the into the hub first, and then out to the switcher. And the reason you want to do that is that if something goes wrong with the switcher, it's it's too easy on the switcher to make mistakes, to reroute things by accident, to 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 to, to drive things in and out. Now it's a little, it can be a little different with the constellations because you have so much I/O. But usually, the advantage that you want to have is you take your signals, you go into your router, and then you spin them up into the switcher. Now those signals, without any input from the router or of the switcher can be rerouted to many locations and it's just a lot simpler i mean that's the traditional approach to that process uh, i would highly recommend sticking with going into the router first because you want those um you know uh zero sync you know you, you basically are I mean, zero latency uh connections going out to all the other things that all the other services that you want to provide then provide to the, the switcher now the second thing that we do is we take the outputs from the switcher on a, again, on a constellation with only a 40 by 40 router, you may be limited, but if you have an HD router and you get something bigger, you take all those outputs and you run them back into the, into the um, video hub as well. Um, and what that allows you for is now you have a place other than the switcher that you can reroute anything that you need to or any combination of those things. And that's what the router is really designed for. Uh, the next step from that will be that you take that router and you attach it to a patch bay. Now, at that patch bay, you're able to now manually patch things with hardware, and that's going to allow you to extend the, 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 how much services, how, the services that are available to a given router. So you might have a patch bay with 256 in and outs and a, and a router that's 40 by 40 or 72 by 72, and you're repatching for a specific show as opposed to kind of going in there and actually uh, moving the cables around. Mitchell? Yeah, just for clarification, I, I think that uh, router and hub are the same thing. Uh, just I'm calling the router confused. and the hub. I'm considering the router and the hub. I've, Mitchell's absolutely right. I'm considering a router and a hub to be the same, the same thing. It's a video router. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Up next, what different places on YouTube, office hours, and so forth, can we see the Cinegear interviews and B-roll? Go ahead, Alex. Uh, what's interesting is I, I did a search, and I think some of the first stuff that came up was uh, uh, our coverage. <laughs> so I don't know if other people are searching and finding that. I have an Aperture has a couple of things. A couple of the other vendors have posted things. I haven't seen a lot of third-party posts other than uh, our coverage. So, um, so if you uh, haven't seen it, you can check it out on our YouTube channel. Go ahead, Bill. I'm not sure if it'll get anywhere, but all the stuff we did in After Hours, I think that was ephemeral. I think that yeah. went out, and I, I don't think it was recorded anywhere, which is too bad because there were a lot of cute little kind of sidesteps, and you saw more of the show. Got to learn, 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 live in the moment. Yeah, <laughs> every, so every once in a while, we don't have to record everything. <laughs> that, that's that, that's what I, I, I. That's the uh, you got to got to be there to enjoy it. There you go. Next, so. next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. The Speed Test app has added a video resolution test up to 4K 2160, but it is only for downloads. Has anyone found a valid upload test and what should be included beyond the raw data rates for a valid video test? Alex? Uh, the, the most valid way to test and upload uh, is to connect to it and run it. Um, so you have to have a router or something that's going to give you feedback. Uh, that is going to tell you what's happening with your line, and then you're going to push video through it. Uh, I haven't seen any of these apps. Remember, they're just taking a, 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 a video file and moving it up and down, and that tells us a little bit. But when we're actually doing streaming, we, we typically want to run something for a long period of time, hours or even days. Uh, when we're getting ready for a large event, we may run our encoder for a week or two straight 
just let it run and and sit there. And what we're looking for is any kind of glitches at certain times of days, any kind of bit you know packet loss um, that we can that we can try to work through it. Um, but but if we're at, on a location and we're getting there, usually hours or um, up to a day. Uh, before the event, we want those encoders running so that we can see the the trajectory of that process. I haven't seen any other, um, you know, solid like built-in tests um, that do it better than just uh, Meraki has stuff built into the router itself that'll do its test. But I haven't found that to be more accurate, to be honest, than Speed of Me or uh, Speed Test, which are the two that we use if we're just testing the raw feed. You want to look at jitter, um, jitter, and and your and your ping time. Uh, are things that you want to pay attention to for mostly for web, WebRTC style, the things that we're doing here. Um, it, that, those are a little less ex, a less of an issue unless they run into a very high number. So as long as your ping time, your ping uh, time is less than about 50 milliseconds, you should be fine. If they get it gets over about 150 milliseconds, you may have trouble with RTMP streaming because it requires a return signal and requires a return check. And if it doesn't get it fast enough, it may stop streaming. Bill? Uh, while shooting at Cinegear, I kept my camera for my B-roll stuff pretty high. I think it was a 4K recording at HDR. And I brought it in and I was putting it into Keynote. And I was surprised at how much processing happened in the back end. This morning when I went to upload a file to a friend of mine who wanted to see a particular thing that I had seen, uh, it took a long time to upload from my phone, probably six or seven minutes. But it arrived at the website looking really good. And let me see if I can show you what, what it was. Let's see if this thing runs here. If it does, probably take a little bit of time to cache. But this is one of the virtual reality booths that they had set up at Cinegear. And you're seeing a motion control arm. And watch the background as it morphs depending on the angle of the shot they're trying to get there. And then they're in just a second going to have the actress stand up and change positions. And I'm going to swing over with my phone and you'll see what the audience would be seeing in terms of the shot they're creating. So they've made it look like she's climbing that wall in a vertical orientation. She's still just there. The director cuts away another shot. She stands up. Do you notice the background changing its perspective entirely? And then she pretends to be climbing up the mountain. And so in the course of... Uh, 30 seconds, 20 seconds, she's gotten two, or the, the director's gotten two really useful shots out of this. And that kind of technology, the background changing as the camera angle changed, we saw a good bit of that on the floor at Cinegear. This is this idea of virtual production just swinging through the industry. Next question. Um, Andy Carluccio comes up. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I, that's right. Andy Carluccio from San Francisco. Zoom Cuts, a new liminal app, was just launched. Adam and I look forward to discussing more on with Office Hours on Thursday. What do you want to learn more about? John? First of all, it's a really unfortunate name, according to SEO right now, because when I searched for it, I just saw a bunch of really negative news stories about Zoom cutting support or, or making layoffs. But on understanding what it does is it integrates your shortcuts app on iOS or Mac OS, it looks like, with Zoom. And so my questions are, is there a library of predefined shortcuts that are as easily accessible? And is it the sort of thing that I can have someone in a remote location using this these apps and shortcuts to control me in Zoom? Mitchell? Anything that Andy or Adam uh, create is great. So I'm going to be very interested to see what they want to come in and uh, talk about. Uh, Adam, best known for mix effects and uh, also for getting me on office hours. So if you have a question of why I'm here, make sure you ask Adam. Go ahead, Harshid. I would love to know what uh, types of accessibility features it offers. And, uh, you know, that way others that do use iOS devices can uh, 
uh, have a, a great experience. I would really love to know uh, the processes and uh, the accessibility aspects. And Alex. Yeah, I, I mostly would love to have a walkthrough of exactly how it works. So how do you set up and how do you take advantage of these uh, shortcuts? So a short like this, literally from the ground up, this is how you set something up to get that action, just to get a simple set of actions that we might use in production. I think that'd be super useful for a lot of folks. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to uh, play with it yet. I was just looking at the website here, but it looks like they uh, they have a... Uh, an interface here that's kind of like a, a virtual stream deck or companion interface to run your shortcuts with, with uh, labeled buttons and uh, colored indicators. And it interlinks, uh, apparently interlinks uh, different apps. So you can set up a flow through of automation by pressing one button. It can talk to other apps uh, on your Mac OS and uh, perform tasks uh, all automated and interconnected with Zoom tasks, you know, like muting and switching and, other things that you can do within Zoom. Yeah, Hasmuk shares in the comments that yes, there are, the release says that there are predefined um, shortcuts, but we'll learn more on Thursday. Next question. Next one comes to us from Tlalo uh, Lopez Waterman in Wilmington, Delaware. And he says, what remote control wide area network does Mimo Live offer? Could it be a software switcher with a remote technical director? Alex? Yeah, I think mostly, I mean, you could definitely, you can control anything that has a screen with the WAN. I mean, anything's on a computer, so Memo Live can be controlled remotely. I don't know of anything specific that would allow that to happen. Um, I think that the only place that you'd be able to do this is potentially to build a VPN and then have your uh, mobile device um, that, you know, on that VPN that would be on the same network as Memo, and you could treat it essentially as a LAN at that point, and that would be probably the way I'd approach that. Next question. Next one comes from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Hello, I'm looking for Home Data NASH, a network attached storage, wireless NIC, RAID 1, 8 plus terabytes. Any recommendations out there? Thank you. Go ahead, Alex. I believe Synology will solve that problem for you. Uh, I'm not sure about the wireless NIC. Um, I believe that some, there are some Synology uh, that, that has that, but otherwise I would I would look pretty hard at the Synology solution. I think it's probably the best in the market. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, comes up next. What's the best way to clean your reading glasses and other lenses on cameras, webcams, and so so forth? Is just a cloth good enough, or do you need a spray solution? Mitchell? You need a very soft, very clean cloth and uh, a water mixed with Dawn detergent. Courtney, you're soaking in it. Okay, Bill. I would not, I, I don't go in that direction, and here's why. The lenses that I tend to use now, particularly on DSLRs and things like that, have coatings, multiple coatings sometimes to, to eliminate chromatic aberrations and stuff like that. I tend to use something from a camera store, a lens solution, and they have a very thin uh, kind of absolutely fiberless wipe that I buy at camera stores as well. And I use those specifically on my lenses. I'm not saying there are not other ways to do it, but I just don't want to have to take the time to make sure that whatever I grab out of my kitchen cabinet and dilute down is going to be a problem. And Courtney? Well, reading glasses, you can use, you know, uh, a solution. Stay away from ammonia because it can attack any coatings on any of the lenses. Uh, make sure any cleaning solution just has uh, distilled water and uh maybe a small percentage of alcohol to cut the grease. The problem with uh, trying to cut the grease is, as uh, Mitch said, the Dawn has a very good surfactant in there that can cut through the grease and uh, remove it from your...
So otherwise, you're just moving that grease around on the lens. You're not going to remove it. So you get fingerprints or nose grease on from handling your glasses. Um, you do need some type of liquid to dissolve that grease and take it onto that microfiber cloth. And uh, make sure you change your microfiber cloth re uh, frequently because it will build up uh, all that stuff that you're wiping off your glass is staying resident in that cloth. So then you're just dragging across the surface of the lens or your glasses uh, when you try and clean them again with the same cloth that you've been using for six months. So <laughs> change your cloth frequently. Alex? Yeah, I um, um, I think we talked about a little bit, but make sure to blow off any dust before you do anything else. Um, you know, so that's the first thing you want to do is make sure that you're not scrubbing the 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 um, uh, debris into the into the lens. For lenses, I don't use recloth. I don't reuse cloths ever. I use little packets. I know that it, it's not uh, environmentally friendly, but when I want to when I want lenses to be clean and I don't want them to be scratched, I have a thing called CareTouch. I bought like five hundred of these on a whatever. And if, so if I need to do if I'm doing a lens <laughs> specifically, um, I'm using a one use, I guess alcohol based. I'm not. I don't think it's alcohol based. It's detergent based um, uh, thing that's going to dry off really quickly. It's not going to leave any streaks and it's not going to scratch it. Uh, I don't use cloth anymore. Like it's, you know, I it just, it's just, I've scratched too many lenses um, doing, using anything like that. Harshid? I'm going to second that with Alex. Uh, I have this little box here. It's an Power duster blower thingamajig. And uh, it, it works well just to get the dust off of your devices at first. And then um, depending on screens and stuff, whatever you might be cleaning with, I know that there's a product called Woosh that cleans screens, but I tend not to use that on lenses or anything like that. But that's the bottle here. And it comes with a little towel uh, thing where one side is smooth, one side has texture on it. And where I typically tend to turn to is these little prep pads uh, to clean my glasses or lenses, phone, etc. It gets it disinfected, and they work well. The it is alcohol based, so it it evaporates pretty quickly, and uh, I think that could be a safe bet to uh, make sure you don't damage any uh, lens coating. Lots of additional comments in the community here in the chat. So never dry wipe your lenses. Also, there's a link for Roscoe Lens Cleaner. And then Mickey also mentions that just distilled spray water should be sufficient and just putting that on the cloth and not actually on your lens. Next question. Next one comes to us from Brett Ramsey in Melbourne, Australia, speaking with a local AWS Amazon Web Services rep today. I had no idea what I was talking about, ReVMix and live production in the they cloud. Had, they had, I think Brett knew what he was talking about. They had no idea. They had no idea. I'm sorry. You're right. They had no idea. what. Yeah, Brett, I'm sure it was. Um, they had no idea what I was talking about, ReVMix and live production in the cloud. They asked if I could get some sort of flow chart or tech brief of how this all works. Is there such a thing available? Go ahead, Alex. I don't know if there's a if there's a, like a tech. We've talked about it a fair bit on the show um, about how it works, but I don't know if anyone's built. I don't know if I've seen anywhere where there's an abs an absolute one. So it's probably something we should put together, or maybe even do a. I know we just did remote production, but a second hour, if someone puts it in the suggestions of, you know, production in the cloud. You know, I think a new state. You know, we've talked a little bit about remote production, but we haven't really talked about getting, you know, how we get those files into the cloud and how do we actually produce the production, at least recently. So I think that doing it again might make sense. Next question. 
Andre Dalle in Berlin, recommendations for a not-too-expensive backup recorder for ATEM program recording. It could be a backup streamer as well, but it shouldn't be a Blackmagic device. AJA, Magewell, Atomus, something like that maybe? I think, shouldn't it be? Shouldn't it be? Shouldn't it? Oh, well, gosh, I don't know why. I'm, I'm, I apologize. Thank you for the correction. It's all the Cinegear this weekend. It's yeah. good. It's okay. <laughs> Alexander. Yeah, there's lots of companies that make products uh, that are good. Uh, the ones that I've used uh, that were, have worked well for me are the Atomos products, the Ninja 5 or Ninja V. Uh, I mean, that thing's reasonably priced. At, I don't know what it is in U.S. dollars, five, $600. It now does come with a ProRes license, so you can record ProRes uh, high-quality 422-444 on it. So that works pretty well. Alex? Remember that a lot of the ATEMs, if you get the right ATEM, it, it actually records internally. <laughs> so you can record those backups internally. Uh, of course, Courtney might suggest some uh, HDMI records that uh, have H.264. Um, and so, uh, but those are a couple different ways that you can do it. Uh, I use HyperDex, uh, different sizes depending on what we have. So either the HyperSec SSD is a lot easier for us to move things around. It's got a couple more features. And then we also use the, uh, the mini or micro uh, HyperDex. Mitchell? Plus one on the HyperDex, Alex, and uh, also uh, the Atomos would be my, uh, probably our first choice, but I'd run both of them at the same time, so you had both copies. And Courtney. Yeah, as you know, I always recommend these little gaming recorders, which you can record H.264. They're great for recording uh, stuff that you're going to want to post on YouTube or something, because it's already H.264 and requires little re-encoding, although they will, of course, re-encode it on the way up uh, uh, to, to accommodate different resolutions and frame rates. But um, this is easy. These are, you know, a hundred bucks. Uh, take HDMI in and HDMI out and uh, can record a decent 1080p or 720p uh, program. The other thing, if you want to do streaming too, there's another thing to look at is the Blackmagic uh, monitors, uh, their video assist, the seven inch and the uh, five inch now accommodate 12, 12G, and they have SDI or HDMI inputs, and convert. They can record uh, in a variety of formats, including H.264 and ProRes and uh, MXF formats, uh, depending. They can go directly into your editing system. And I think, uh, I'm not sure, correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, I can't remember. I think they do now include streaming uh, in those. They uh, do. Yeah, I think the 12G does. Yeah, The 12G version, so. You can do all of that from uh, each of those, and they're they're nice little monitors to use as well. Yeah, plus one on the assists. We use those as well. And speaking of assists, producers, this is a great time for you to go ahead and submit your questions. That gives our panel enough time to give you some insightful information and insights. And also go ahead and get those WWDC questions in early and voting impacts the questions that we get a chance to answer today. Next question. Alexander Knight's back in from Vancouver, British Columbia. Has anyone tried this Pro-AIM 3-axis motorized pan and tilt head with success? It seems reasonably priced and comes with a remote control, and he's got the link there for Amazon to see it. Courtney? Well, I have not tried it, that's for sure, but I, I have looked at the link. Uh, it, it does look interesting here, and it has the uh, – it looks a little bit lightweight to be able to handle uh, a 33-pound payload. Uh, has 360 degrees smooth and precise moves. Of course, you'll have to figure out how to route your cabling to your camera or have a wireless transmitter in your camera so that your cables don't get all wound up. 
and it has this uh, this offset rig over here so that you can adjust the height of the camera to get the center of rotation just about right. But looking at the size of the uh, servos, I'd say everything's going to be have to be carefully balanced and, and that you're going to have to have your center of gravity located uh, you know, directly over the servo points of rotation. Otherwise, you're going to get some backlash. Uh, I don't th know if those servers can be able to handle the momentum of a fast pan somewhere without uh, and be able to stop the thing before it, <laughs> before it goes too far. Next question. Jonas Donnell, uh, Stuttgart, Germany. Update on question about the 444 signal into an ATEM Mini. Took an ATEM Mini into the lab and can confirm now on HDMI 1 and on the Extreme 2, it gets confused when receiving a 444 signal and displays the wrong color or the color wrong. But 444 works fine on the rest. 10-bit, he notes, does not work. So information as a follow-up. Hmm. Go ahead, Alex. My only question for Jonas is whether it's 10-bit 444 that doesn't work or 10-bit at all. Um, so it seems I'd be surprised if 10-bit 422 didn't work, but it'd be interesting to see. Uh, so that, that's part that I don't quite understand, uh, know there is whether 10-bit is it's just the 10-bit 444 is the issue or not. He's in the comments, so he'll probably tell us something yeah. while I go to Mitchell. Yeah, I don't know if you can squeeze that much data into an 8-bit processor, even if it's got a great scaler like in the ATEM. So I think that's a bit of a headache for it. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. I read that the logic-based playback system for a major concert is based around a pair of 14-inch MacBook Pros. Given the thermal constraints of a 14-inch chassis, wouldn't there be a risk of throttling run when running complex sessions on a 14-inch? Alex? Uh, usually for a live, I don't, I don't, we, I don't find the sessions that complicated. There's not as much processing typically on those types of things, and so, so I, I think that it'd probably be fine, especially if they're lifted. So um, a lot of times when you have these laptops, they're not sitting on a desk; they're sitting on either a, a, some kind of metal lift that tends to um, give them both some circulation as well as um, get them, you know, against another, another piece of metal that they can use as a heat sink. So, so I think that you're probably, and I bet you they're probably not pushing that hard. Alexander. Yeah, this used to be way more of an issue on Intel processors, but with the Apple Silicon stuff, I mean, those things run at a, a lot lower voltage. They, they seem to run a lot cooler. So, and like Alex Lindsay was saying, if you get that stuff off the, off the table, just get some air moving around it. I mean, you should be fine. And Bill. And that's why I have these always in my bag. Uh, they actually, if they're not up at an angle, collapse down into a really, really small thing. They are aluminum, so they form a heat sink, but this becomes just a very small thing. You can throw in a laptop bag, and if you pull it out, you can cant your computer up so it gets airflow all around it. So if I'm on location, I always have one of these in my bag with me. Next question. Next question comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. The University of Texas just opened applications for a master's in AI or MSAI, a new degree, 100% online. The cost is $10,000 in U.S. What would the curriculum look like? And he has a link there to the listing at UDSO, UTexas. John. Uh, being 100% online, it also says that it's asynchronous, but it's on a scheduled um, week. So it looks like you sign up for a full semester at a time, which likely means that what the courses look like are a lot of pre-recorded lectures with activities that the students 
go through on their own and then they'll submit some sort of assignment to assess their learning. It does look like it's about a two-year program and being $10,000 is a very uh, competitive cost compared to a lot of other online universities. Courtney? Yeah, my question is, if this is a course in AI and it's all remote and unsupervised, how are they going to police taking the exams to let to figure out how much you learned during this course without you using, you know, a uh, AI system to uh, take those exams for you. Uh, I don't know how they're going to do that. Go ahead, Alex. Uh, I just don't know how you have that many experts willing to teach that could give you something that would equate to a master's degree. Um, I, I get that they're jumping on a bandwagon and they're, and they're doing it, but um, you know, I believe that this course is the example of all the things that are wrong with universities. <laughs> so, so the idea that we're going to create a master's course about something that we don't know anything about yet, you know, like that we don't even know where it's going and you can pay $10,000 to do something that you don't even have to come to class for. I just, it's just fleecing people. Like <laughs> that's, that's my opinion. And I second that, Alex. That's exactly, I went to the website and I, I looked through it and it does say that there'll be some things around ethics and and some other areas. And I, and I get that they are like, we need to jump on this now before we get left behind. But the industry is so new and everybody is figuring it out. So this is, this is just why people don't take, take um, you know, are, are, this is why a lot of people are continuing to not take many of these degrees seriously is because people keep on stacking up these little pieces of paper that are empty and meaningless. Yeah. But I was also thinking, okay, now it's asynchronous. They'll be putting together lectures as they go along because most likely that it's not all flushed out because there's so much change happening. So they're the a master's program is is different, the audience that they're trying to reach. So they're also looking at, well, the people who will who respect or yeah, we'll just say respect <laughs> that master's degree. And that's a part of the the funnel for when they're looking for job applicants, then yes, that makes sense. But at the end of the day, it's results. Like, can you do the work? Can you do the thought process? And a lot of that can happen outside of a master's program. John? Yeah, the entire course list is is well-known computer concepts. It's like not like it's something new. I think it's the title, uh, if anything, is a little bit um, de rigueur. <laughs> but overall, it's it's computer science at a master's level. Alex, you know, and I think that I think that one of the things that I, I, this does bring up uh, is the fact that you know, for the most part, you didn't actually college didn't really need to teach you anything. It just needed to prove that you're willing to show up, and then we we would get these college students, and then we have to retrain them anyway. And and so it didn't really matter, other than they went through the the process of that of that thing to prove that they could do it, and they got their little piece of paper, and then we literally threw away almost everything that they had learned and gave them something new because that's what we needed to actually get things done. Um, with AI, uh, they're gonna, school is going to, both K through 12 and university are going to have to be much more effective, like a hundred times more effective. People are going to have to come out at an expert level at 22. And we have to really start thinking about what, it, what is required to make that actually happen. And just wanted to highlight, John, what you did say, because as I, um, when I looked at it, before the show, it's like, okay, this is all like machine learning, all the fundamental things that you would need to know. So it is somewhat of a SEO keyword search, what is hot now, pulling that that under, um, under a title. So we, we shall see. Next question. 
Tony Mobley is in from Noonan, Georgia. Any suggestions for the use case with 100 plus DVD movies that I have instead of just use as coasters? Mitchell? Yeah, I had to uh, retire a lot of my coaster, I mean, my DVDs some, some years ago, but I recommend that you rip them, get them up on the cloud. The best scenario that I can recommend moving forward is get Apple TV and use Apple's uh, uh, ecosystem. It's just great being able to know they're always there on all your Apple devices uh, up there in the cloud, and you can search them by genre and everything else, whether you purchased them or whether you rented them. You can tell if you rented it before. All of those things are just well beyond the, uh, uh, the reality of having an actual physical disc. Alexander? Yeah, as someone who uh, appreciates physical media, I think f physical media is a very important thing to preserve the art that we make. Um, as much as I love my 4K UHD Blu-rays and my regular Blu-rays, there are a lot of films and TV shows that have never been released on anything past DVD. And a lot of those will never see any kind of better resolution uh, restoration. So if you don't want to keep the physical discs, what you could could do is just rip them and code them and you know install something like a Plex server so you can actually just stream them, but you always have a copy of those. And Courtney? Well, you could rip them. Um like it was said, and put them on a, on a Plex server of some sort. But uh, these days, you know, I have a huge collection of VHS tapes over here that I haven't looked at in 15 years. And uh, now that almost every movie, even the obscure ones you can find on YouTube, somebody has posted them up there. And if they haven't been taken down by, you know, if they're fairly obscure, the copyright owners are probably going to appreciate the exposure of their long forgotten films and will leave them up. Uh, so, you know, besides that, if you subscribe to two or three streaming services like uh, Prime or Apple or um, Netflix, uh, look for the titles that you have in your library and search them. See if they're available on streaming just by search. You don't have to subscribe to find them and uh, and just take the ones that are available on most streaming services and put them aside and only keep the ones uh active or on your own on your own system that are hard to find or not available on streaming. And that way you can kind of have the best of both worlds. The thing I miss with streaming though, is uh, I can go back if I just want to watch the movie, but if I want to analyze it and go through it uh, scene at a time or stop and freeze frame and just go three frames forward to see, Oh, that's how they did that shot. Or, Oh, you can see the actor changed out to the stunt person right at this point. You can see, cause you can freeze frame it. That's very difficult to do with streaming media to accurately pause it. And most streaming players put up some kind of interface every time you hit pause, which, you know, covers up a lot of the stuff on the screen and a good uh, DVD, you know, Blu-ray player, DVD player, or playout uh, software that's playing out off of a local, off of a local drive. You don't have those problems that you have with a streaming source. Bill, I took this literally. What to do with the physical discs? Since you mentioned coasters, and I can't think of anything really useful. I mean, you could get some fishing line and make some mobiles that refract the light interestingly, but I don't. That you know, there just really isn't any value in the plastic discs. They are waste and recycle. I know anything that I have burned that might have some value or maybe software or something like that, I run through a shredder because most of the shredders will do these discs, the lightweight CDs, but getting rid of them, they're really of no use physically. Go ahead, Mitchell. 
And also, technology moves on, Tony. So some of the stuff you may have may be regular uh, standard def or a uh, low-res uh, HD, not a 4K. Um, again, uh, Courtney's advice of being able to do a search on the, your preferred streaming media would be a good idea just to know which ones you should hold on to because they're constantly redoing and remastering. Um, thing. I saw an old movie the other day. It was uh, with uh, James Stewart in it, and it was beautiful. Uh, it was nothing like the DVD that I had, so keep that in mind. And pointing out in our chat that Jeffrey says, there's a fine line when you rip a DVD with a copyright. If you do that, keeping the DVDs are important. Next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. How much has the office hours elevator pitch, which is used to explain what office hours is to new people, how much has that changed over the last year, and how was it used at Cinegear? Harshid? Well, me being on the panel and having the, the video post and to share that, um, I'm, I have family in the hospital right now, and it's funny because I was showing them the videos and how office hours work. So, yeah, you guys got me hooked on this, and I'm now an audio guy supposedly trying to pedal microphones to people. So, <laughs> Alex. Yeah, it doesn't really change that much. Um, when we were talking to when talking to vendors, I, we didn't have to explain who we were because we came with an entourage. So it's one thing for a person to walk up with their camera and their little mic and try to explain what they do. It's another thing when eight people show up with a cart, um, a you know a, a cart that you know and, and about thirty thousand or forty thousand dollars worth of equipment. People just kind of just like okay, let's do this. <laughs> you know, so I don't think that we, uh, I don't, we didn't have to do a lot of ex explanation of, of who we are. I don't know if Courtney had a different experience, but it, it didn't seem like there was a lot of explanation necessary. And we had people walking up uh, relatively frequently just saying how much they love the show. Courtney? It was a different experience on the after hours day, the first day, uh, Friday, where we're, the three of us were running around with just our phones on selfie sticks and streaming. Uh, trying to explain to vendors with just one, you know, each one of us, just one person with a, you know, phone on a stick, which is, you know, typical these days of most vloggers. Uh, but of having to explain that, oh, oh, this is, we're just doing the uh, checkout now and people are going to vote on which, which booths to, you know, to try and explain, uh, I should have worked on my elevator pitch for office hours more to try and explain that, well, we're a global uh, daily show of audio visual equipment. It's used in production and live streaming, you know, so I had to go on through the whole spiel and explain to them that we'll be back with a full crew tomorrow and interview you for real today. We're just getting background information. So there was kind of two different times you had to do your spiel and uh, they had much more respect for us. As I, Alex said, when we showed up with our whole entourage of uh, Alex uh, at the controls being the, uh, that was interesting. Alex was the man behind the curtain, the wizard of Oz back there operating all the audio and video controls to make sure that we got the stream out uh, for all of us people that were standing in front of the camera. And we nice. never turned around to shoot Alex. I'm sorry, Alex. We never turned around to do a no, shot no. of you at the controls of the cart there. Me, me frazzled, just looking at my hair going everywhere, just trying to make sure that everything kept working. <laughs> but you no know, attention to that man behind That's the right. cart. <laughs> yes. And really Alex trying to roll the, the cart in as close as he could to, to the uh, wireless mics to make sure we weren't getting hits on them. That was really fun to watch. Bill? 
I didn't, it was really interesting. So I'm used to shooting like this because I do a lot of events with just the rig that I had there, the camera and the and my phone in a small rig, and then my light next to it on a monopod. Most people ignored me. When I went into reporter mode and I actually did the stand-ups and switched the camera around and walked down an array of uh, equipment to get kind of that B-roll shot, uh, I'm just so used to doing it. But after I did that, and a, and a few times people stopped me and just wandering through with that rig, people did stop. I think they were seeing the iPhone display screen, how nice that shot looked. And they say, can you explain your rig to me? So at least four people stopped me and said, talk me through what you're doing here. I was surprised at that. I thought it would be old hat by now that everybody would see people using iPhones to cover stuff. And Alex. Yeah. And uh, Peter Rosato got as much attention as we did. He had a crazy rig. I don't think we took a picture. I don't know if we got pictures of Peter with his, but he's got an iPad, an iPhone. He's got this huge flagpole with an Insta360 on the end. Uh, it was quite a, his, his rig was, was impressive. And uh, there were as many people stopping him just to ask him, like, what are you doing over there? Uh, as there was looking at, at our rig. Next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles comes up next. What are good monitoring speakers for under $200? Alexander. Yeah, so, I mean, if you're talking about studio monitors, uh, I don't know if you're looking for something $200 max for the pair or $200 each. Studio monitors are usually sold in singles. My recommendation, and this is totally subjective, as someone who sells and tests a lot of studio monitors, the Atom T5V is a 5-inch studio monitor. The magic is in that ribbon tweeter and sounds incredible. They're $199 US dollars each. If $200 max is your budget for both, then you're looking at something a lot smaller and more compromised. Uh, I'll post a link here, but the Tannoy Reveal 4-inch, uh, it's the 402 model. I think they're discontinued now, but they're $119 US each. So if that's your budget, then that's kind of, it really narrows the options that you have at that price point. Alex. Yeah, the other question is whether you want them to be uh, powered speakers or unpowered speakers. You know, so are they getting the power from the amplifier? Are they getting an XLR? I generally, for flexibility, strongly prefer XLR inputs and have them be self-powered with their own, you know, and, and that is uh, kind of how I buy speakers. I tend to because I just don't like dealing with speaker cable. <laughs> Mostly I want to be able to send Dante to it or do whatever else I need to to make that happen. Uh, under $200, there's very few options if you decide you want XLR inputs. Uh, I have JBL 305Ps. Um, I think that they're reasonably good. They're not great, um, but they're not bad. Um, and they uh, they do a pretty good job. They're solid, solid set of speakers. And Mitchell. Yeah, anything from JBL, I agree, as, as a good speaker. Uh, unpowered, KRK makes a nice line. Um, and if you're going to get a powered small speaker, uh, Audio Engine makes a, uh, a line of speakers. But please, please, please spend more than $200 and get yourself a pair of Genelex. Uh, mine over here are 30 years old, and they still work just fine. How much were they 30 years ago? $2,000. Okay. Just just putting the, the price comparison between saying, spend a little more than $200. Yeah, um, just think about it over over 30 years. You know, or, you and, know divide that into 30 years. You know, and, and, and my decision was was multiplied also because I was building a larger system. So I had, I bought 12 of them. <laughs> so, so, um, so, uh, so I needed to have um, more, uh, you know, I was multiplying everything I was spending by, by 12. Copy Great. that. Mickey says that the JBL 305P, I believe it's yeah, that's what M. I mean, that's what I mean. Uh, okay, copy. Next question. 
Next question comes from Harshi Travidian, Tony Beach, Florida, here on the panel. Where do you buy your Ethernet cables? I'm feeling wary of Amazon and off-sellers, uh, which I take as a security risk, partially. Harshid. Yeah, and I wanted to clarify that, that it's a uh, Cat 8 Ethernet cable that I'm searching for, so that uh, gives me more robust... Uh, I know I could get regular Cat 7 and whatnot, but it's uh, flat cables, and so I was just curious, uh, where do you guys get your Ethernet cables? Alex. Uh, Monoprice. That's where I buy them all. You said Monoprice? A Monoprice. Monoprice is where I buy all my Ethernet cables. Uh, it's one of the few cables that I refuse to build. <laughs> like, I just like life's too short. So, um, you know, there's some people that are really good at it. They seem to like it. I hate, I hate Ethernet cable construction. For some reason, there's something about it that makes me crazy. It's the untwisting the twisted pairs and everything else. Just I find it's not that it's hard. It's just annoying. And, um, and there's something about it that I just really don't like. And so, uh, so anyway, so I, I, I buy them. I buy lots of them. They're really, really inexpensive at Monoprice. And unlike their HDMI cables, they work all the time. So um, uh, I, wouldn't, I, don't, I wouldn't buy HDMI cables from Monoprice ever, based on a fair amount of experience thinking, well, they must make these well. And then uh, noticing that every failure I had was with the HDMI cables. But the, um, uh, every, every HDMI failure was a Monoprice cable. Um, but their Ethernet cables are great. Just buy lots of lengths. They're like a dollar each or $3 each or $2 each. Just buy, you know, three foots and six foots and 10 foots and 50 foots and then just have a big stack of them and then you can sort it out later. Courtney. Yeah, I don't know about the uh, Cat 8, uh, the flat cables. I was going to recommend Monoprice as well because I agree with Alex. That's, the, you know, the best place. You know, here's a seven-footer for a buck ninety-nine. They have the... Uh, the little protectors for the clips so that when you're pulling them backwards through a tangle of cables, it doesn't break off the little plastic clips. Uh, but I don't find any flat cables at Monoprice, so you may have to go elsewhere. to, to a, That's kind of a, a specific uh, type of cable. It's for routing around on walls and things that are uh, going to be low profile that you may be able to you know, spackle over or paint over or something that but uh yeah that you might have to go to a specialty vendor to get the cat seven flats and they'll come in fixed lengths and they're probably going to be murdered to put into connectors they're going to only be available with pre-attached connectors because most crimpers and are not designed to take those flat cables uh, and attach them uh, with a with a good strain relief and that looks yeah, and, and if for all those complaining about Apple's 30% commission, take a look at Monoprice's Ethernet ca cable cost and then take a look at Best Buy's Ethernet cable costs and realize that Best Buy is paying less than Monoprice's uh, for, for their cables. And think about that margin. <laughs> so, 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 anyway. And for our producers, this is a great time for you to continue to submit your questions just before we get to the top of the hour. And remember, voting impacts the questions that get asked. Next question. Our next question comes in from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. This is the best, is this the best use of my ATEM Mini Pro? I have connected an iPad M1, Mac Mini, Zoom ISO machine. iPhone is the primary camera in the back of the teleprompter and a 4K Apple TV. Any suggestions would be appreciated. Go ahead, Alex. I know it's hard to fit into the question. It's really hard to understand what's getting connected into the other things as you describe that. So I'm not sure what's going into the ATEM versus what's going out of the ATEM. So try to maybe rephrase that or maybe we'll jump into a lab or something. But it's hard to understand exactly what you're connecting one to the other. Yeah, Tony, if you want to put that in the in the chat for us, that would be great. Next question. Next one comes to us from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Was seeing monitors in camera 
good enough at Cinegear, or should we consider direct feeds in the future? Alex. We had a great post-mortem, uh, informal post-mortem of Cinegear on in After Hours yesterday because I was dri- I was driving up the five and I think we talked for like three hours about about after uh, about um, Cinegear, uh, and I think that one of the things we had discussed was that it might be good to build a box that is kind of got a, you know automatically converts to what we need. Um, but takes in, you know, just about any HDMI or SDI signal. So using a decimator or even a, you know, the, a variety of these other things that we can just say, hey, can we put this in the middle to grab onto your signal? Or can we put it on the end if they have an end um, for us to grab the signal directly to send it out and pump that into the live view as another input? Um, we were thinking that that might be a kind of a useful um, tool in that area. Uh, so so that that's what I think, I think uh, Roscoe's talking to. And I think it'd be great. I think about half, maybe twenty-five percent of the of the folks will let us do that. Um, so I think it's it'll be very rare for us for for us to be able to do it. But there'll be some. The smaller booths will probably say, "Yeah, sure," and the bigger booths will say, "No way." <laughs> you know. So so I think that I, um, one of the things that you know I'm I'm uh, working on a design for digital first events and in the expo. Uh, one of the things that we're planning to do is is provide a lot of the subsystems for each booth so that, that it's really ready to broadcast. And that um, that automatic like tap out is what we want to put into every booth. So that as they build it and get it to the monitors, they put their thing in, it goes to the monitors that are behind them, but it automatically send, you know, puts it in a front area where we can just tap in so that when we're covering them as we go by, they we just there's not they don't have to do anything to, to support what we're doing. Courtney? I think that would be something new because I've never seen any vendors at NAP. Oh, we have. Where I've else. done it 100%. 100% of the, I, 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 I haven't well, done it 100% right. of the time, but I've, I've definitely gotten vendors to give me direct taps um, you know, when I've asked. In fact, I'd probably say I'm batting almost 100%, but I, right. I don't ask Autodesk to do it or Blackmagic. But, but in smaller, venue, uh, smaller booths, a lot of times you can be pretty persuasive. <laughs> Well, the point, if they're using SDI monitors, sure, it's, it's a lot easier. Uh, if a lot of these smaller booths are using HDMI, are using consumer-based television, you know, 50-inch television sets these days or 85-inch or, you know, television sets in their booth, and they're hitting them with HDMI and, and splitting out an HDMI signal, if they don't have splitters involved, is is more difficult and they'll probably be a little more resident to, to do that. Uh, and because of HDCP involved, the handshake makes it more difficult. And, you know, you have to deal with all of that consumer rigmarole in, in getting a signal through to uh, split off to uh, something that can record it or transmit it. Uh, so that can be more difficult. If it's already in SDI format, then it's much easier, as Alex said. But uh, I haven't, you know, I've been in booths for 40 years and I've never had anyone ask, to take a direct feed from what we're putting on them. Hey, it's a new Cor- world Courtney, out there, though. <laughs> Courtney and I haven't had enough time together to, to, so that I can walk over to his booth and say, hey, I need to, you know, like, yeah. I, it, usually I it starts told with, hey, get lost, buddy. <laughs> usually, usually it starts with, there's a couple hundred people watching this video. So, okay, well, there's really an incentive. Do, like, you yeah, just, sure. yeah, there's, you gotta, it's possibility greater than circumstance. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> we didn't have the, the advantage of having Alex's mottos to convince us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Next question. Next one comes to us from Nigel DeSau in Austin, Texas. I don't know if Apple is driving me to buy a new studio today, but my Ultra has a problem. It says I have a network connection, but none of my connected apps see the internet. What am I missing? Alex? 
Yeah, I don't know exactly what's happening there, but I will say that the first thing that I would do is make sure to see if the web, if your web browser sees something. Um, so that'd be the first place that I would look. The second place that I would look is getting on. I'd open up a um, a terminal. So command, uh, yeah, open up the terminal and in the terminal ping a known address like eight 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 and just see are you pinging. So at the lowest level. Are you able to see something outside of your internal network? So a Mac might say, I'm connected to the, I'm connected, but is it really connected to the internet? And is it connected to the outside internet? <laughs> and those are the, the first things that I would do to, um, to do that. After that, I would start seriously concerning. Um, if, if I had that problem specifically, I probably, I know this will sound archaic and I don't even know if it works in the newest one. I haven't had this kind of problem in a long time. But the next step after this on older Macs was to reset the PRAM, and that's holding down Command Shift PR while restarting, and you'll hear it you'll hear it thump three times if you hold it down long enough. Then you let it go, and it's deleted all of its um, you know uh, kind of half volatile memory um, in the PRAM, and then oftentimes many things that weren't working get fixed. <laughs> don't forget that's the a, option key. You don't need to do that. I don't think. Copper, mm-hmm. Courtney. And one thing that's bitten me a couple of times is make sure your uh, system clock is set correctly. Because if it's set to another time, uh, it may not connect to the internet. Because if it doesn't agree on time, the ethernet, I mean, the network will not allow you to connect and send data. So make sure your uh, local clock is either set from the internet or set at least, you know, within a few seconds of the correct time. Go ahead, Bill. And one other little trick, if you have the proper internet tools, you can run a trace route and see if you're getting all the way through everything. I can't tell you the number of times I've fought and thinks I my computer is messing up, and it turns out that my network feed has gone to heck in a handbasket just because I didn't pay attention to what was going on in the background. And in our chat, um, Jack said that he had recently had this, a similar issue with his M1 Mac Mini, so using a USB-C to Ethernet worked for him. Next question. Tommy Shanson, St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, is up next. And Tommy says, would you consider running an Insta360 and the Ambisonic mic for a pre-roll on the M- on the NAB type productions? Go ahead, Alex. Uh, maybe. Um, you know, I think that it is... Uh, I think in, in a lot of these, it's just a matter of how much time will it take to actually execute that. And so I think that's, that's where we... Um, you know, we, we had about as many, it seems like we have too many people when you're up there, but everybody was pretty busy. So adding another thing that we're shooting and another thing that we're thinking about framing, uh, is, would, would, would be a thing. Um, but you know, Peter Rosado was, was actually, he was connected, um, to that, uh, you know, he had an Insta360 there. So theoretically he could have been streaming it if we had given him the tools. Courtney. Yeah, right. Uh, I agree. The, I mean, be interesting just as a placeholder, uh, to let you hear the atmosphere. You're not going to hear any with the ambisonic. You're not going to hear any detail because you want to have it up above. So you're not going to get people talking about, you know, where they ate last night, et cetera, and walking by the m- microphone uh, to avoid, you know, transmitting that kind of stuff out. But uh, it'd be interesting as a placeholder get just to let you get a feel of the location. Next question. Jack Cannon, coming to us from Phoenix, Arizona, says, what was on the Cinegear cart? Was there any video or is was there a video discussing this somewhere? Go ahead, Alex. Inquiring minds. We are going to talk about it in the future, um, but uh, I'll show you a little bit of a preview of one of the shoots so you can get a sense of what, what we had there. But we are going to have a full breakdown of what, what, we, what we used Cinegear because we did change the pipeline a fair bit. Uh, if you look at this here, we have a, um, we have a live view here. 
Um, and then um, that was basically what we did is this is, um, we've got a, 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 um, a Canon uh, R8. Uh, that was Jesse's R8. And we, he had a better lens <laughs> than I did. Um, and so the Canon worked fairly well. Um, and then basically there was no audio over here. So what we did is we put a, uh, um, we were able to get, uh, Teradek provided a, um, uh, a Ranger, which is an incredibly powerful transmitter. Um, so we had a Ranger here, uh, battery here. The Ranger then went over here and you can see the receiver over here for the, uh, for the Ranger here. So that it was, it came into that, to that point here. We had electrosonics, so we were using um, electrosonic mics. We were doing handhelds, uh, so we had SM58s and electrosonic uh, uh, mic plugs. Um, those came back to these receivers here, um, and then those receivers went straight into this. Uh, this is a, a sound device, a Scorpio. Um, so we had the mics going into the Scorpio. We were able to add also an ambisonic mic later in another test, so we had up to six channels into the Scorpio. Those went out of the Scorpio as AES, um, and they went into a... Um, black, hidden down here is a Blackmagic uh, audio to SDI uh, embedder. So we embedded the, it all here. What this allowed us to do is really keep all the weight and complexity over here and allow the camera operator to have a lot more fluidity um, and not really have a backpack, not really have to worry about a lot of other things. Um, and, and it took a lot of weight off of them. In, in all the stuff we've done in the past, the operators had the backpack almost always had the backpack on them. So this was a lot, a lot simpler. Um, Courtney had a big battery under here. It saved us. <laughs> it was a big battery with some, with an inverter. So we had, we were able to plug stuff into there. So that, that worked out well. I don't know how we would have survived without Courtney's um, cart. So I, I, or how I would have survived because I would have been carrying this mess. Um, anyway, so then this all went as an embedded signal back into the live view and out back to San Rafael and then fed back into the, into the show. And it worked uh, I think really well. Um, you know, obviously we'll we'll make some adjustments. We'd like to put the receivers up a little bit higher um, away from the cart um, and a couple other things. But I think that um, overall, the next step is to really see if we can do two, three, four cameras. Uh, the the structure that we're thinking about right now is you know three cameras and and an HDMI input. Next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California is up next. Are light stands a better solution than C stands if you usually travel by car? What would be the trade-offs? Alex? You can't lever a light stand. <laughs> so, so when you think about what you're going to put up there, a light stand really wants the weight to be straight above it. Um, it's, it's lightweight. It's easier to fold. I use a lot of light stands in places that people would use C stands. But the, the, center of, the center of gravity really needs to be coming straight down that pole. There, there, you can't, what, the big advantage of a C-stand is you can throw an arm onto it and then come up over and really build something more complex. Um, you can sandbag both of them, and a strong light stand will put up with a lot of weight, but that weight wants to be coming straight down over the, over the center of mass. Courtney. And traveling with them, C-stands are pretty tough because you can't, they don't collapse very small. Uh, they don't collapse smaller than about four or five feet tall and about two and a half feet wide. The legs all fold together so that they soldier up nicely, but they are heavy. Uh, and so you have to take that into consideration. And light stands, if you're going to be putting, as Alex said, any kind of uh, heavy lights on them, they need to be above, directly above the post. You can't cantilever very many light stands 
that have folding legs and the legs have to be able to accommodate. If you're going to do that, they have to be able to accommodate sandbags because you have to have more weight at the bottom of that to keep them from tipping over. C stands are pretty heavy and steel and, you know, they can accommodate a lightweight load on a little arm offset without a sandbag, but they're dangerous. I would suggest you always use a sandbag to anchor one leg of the C stand. If you have it extended out, uh, any kind of weight extended out on that arm, uh, but the light stands can be lightweight, can fold, and can fit into a case mm-hmm. that carries some of your uh, LED lights, which were are great for that kind of stuff. Bill, everything has uh, most of it has been covered. The one thing that I think you can get a little extra mileage out of there's another uh, possibility, which is to add weight to the back of what's called a menace arm, so that it shifts the the center of gravity on an extension. Most of the time, with standard C stands, a grip head and an arm is limited to about three feet or so. If you have to go out more than that, you typically want this kind of arrangement where you have a a heavier weight and it keeps that center of gravity toward the center rather than out front, which will make almost anything tip over. So this is all grippage and and study it. And Alex. Yeah. And and the one that I use the most probably as a light stand is the Promaster LS-CT. And the reason that this one, it's a fairly lightweight one. It it has a very low open, um, which you can still sandbag, but it folds on itself and you can fit multiple ones into a carry-on, which is important for me. So if you're looking for a light stand that can that's fairly fluid, you can put the legs flat out on the ground so it opens all the way up so that they're flat or, or bring them up uh, if you have a lighter um, system. Um, and it, it's really, really effective, especially if you're doing 360. So if you're using an Insta360 or a Theta or something like that, and what's nice about it is, is that the, because the legs are really far away from your camera, um, it's easier to paint out the, the tripod. Thank you so much, panel and producers, for your questions for the first hour. Now we're going to make our transition to what we're calling our, our pregame to WWDC, which is a worldwide developers conference by Apple, where this is where they share all of their updates, software updates. Developers are coming together from all <coughs> over the world so that they will be able to share all the the new developments <laughs> that are happening with that are happening with Apple and panel please feel free to raise your hand so that we can really get into it because there's just been so many um, so many rumors and I'm excited to see um, especially for me iOS the watch the watch Alex yeah one of the things I want to, to speak to what you're having I, I I'm pretty excited about the AR stuff and everything else, but what I really want is custom watch watch faces. <laughs> like, I mean, like, can we just make our own watch faces? I mean, like, let's just get back to the important things here. Yeah, you might put out a new computer, you might put out a, but I really want a watch a watch face with second hands all the time. Right. Uh, I have I have a program called Atomic Clock, and um and it and I can run it uh, as an app on my phone, and so I, mean, I can have it on my watch. And just seeing mm-hmm. it on my watch, it doesn't. It runs a little rough because it's an app, and Apple keeps on making it stop and everything else. But just seeing it run there is like I could I could have this all the time if we just had custom uh, custom um, watch faces. I just don't understand. Anyway, so like uh, from day one, I haven't understood that. Um, I will say that that we're pretty excited about um, you know. A lot of us are pretty excited about to see what Apple actually does here. Um, we've been talking about it. They've been working on this uh, publicly for seven or eight years now. Like, so we basically saw them open up with uh, support for USDZ, some basic AR tools. They now added LiDAR into almost all of their entire line. 
So Apple has been slowly building the foundation for this now for years. And this is not what we should look at is this is not a public, this is most likely, we don't know till 10 o'clock this morning. Most likely, this is not a public release of a headset. So a lot of people are saying, well, it'll be a, a success or failure. We don't know. Uh, most likely, this is going to be a release of a developer edition. Um, that developer edition is, is designed to allow the developers a year or two to actually um, build the best apps. And this is and, and it's so important that they do this because one of the things that it was missing with most of the, I've worked on most of the other launches, is that um, is that you have a headset and you throw it out there, and then you um, once you throw that headset into the wild, uh, they're hoping that people will build stuff. But now people have bought hardware. A lot of people invest hardware, three hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, fifteen hundred dollars into devices that don't have any content, and that is not a great user experience. And so I think that what Apple is doing is carefully seeding that market. Uh, with developer editions that allow the developers to make sure that once there is a consumer device, I mean, but, uh, you know, and, and you can see like who on Twitter actually knows what they're talking about or not. When people are asking like, do you think consumers are going to buy, spend $3,000 on a headset? Um, the answer is you don't, aren't paying attention. <laughs> like that's the problem. Like you don't actually understand what you're talking about. You know, so so that's 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 the proper response for for people who do that on Twitter. Um because it doesn't it's not designed for them. It's designed for people to to figure that out. Now, I think Apple probably will and should allow people to spend $3,000 on it and buy it um and not make it, you know, maybe put the hoop of you have to become a developer to get it. Um, but I think that we're going to see, uh, you know, what, what's going to happen is you're going to see a lot of developers, um, you know, developing new ideas, um, building out things, getting investment to do those things, uh, either from uh, grants like what you see with the, you, you, the Unreal Mega Grants um, or, you know, investors. This is going to be a hot, if, if it comes out and looks reasonably good. And I would say reasonably good is pretty much any headset that has 6K per eye over 96 frames a second. Um, if, if it's... If it's not that, they should promise that it will be somewhere in the future, <laughs> you know, in, you know, in writing. Um, but but I think that if we can get that higher frame rate and a higher resolution, it makes a dramatic difference in the in the viability of the product. Um, and then what you're going to see is a year or two of developers um, posting things like, "Look at me, look at what I did," and people are going to be. I think you're going to end up with a lot of consumers salivating over the possibilities of what's there as they as people start to to um, kind of build that up. And that's going to kind of, you know, soften the ground uh, for, for them to release a true consumer product, which I think will be uh, the late 2024 to early 2025. And thank you all that submitted, uh, responded to the poll. And we'll have another one coming up soon with the results. Will you be watching WWDC today? So we've got 31 votes for I'll be and, watching a lot. Yep. And you can watch with us. Yes. We're doing it. If you're watching this right now, 10 o'clock in after hours, we're all going to be sitting there talking about it. That's the real after party right there. <laughs> and then the second highest vote was I'll be watching later. Well, correction, I'll wait for my favorite news source. And then the third highest being I'll watch later. Nigel? So I think the big question for me, uh, and I then have some predictions, which based on no facts at all, what I think is going to happen today. Uh, I think what's really interesting is Apple's announcements tend to be very product-centric. So they do product, product, product. What I think will be interesting to watch is whether they try and pick an over-coverage over theme. And there's always themes that you know crop up through the products, but will they try and put a whole theme uh, of around virtual reality, augmented reality, or some sort of reality? What will happen with 
you know, AI, they're being beaten up in the press for whatever that's worth about AI. How will they try and pull that in? But here are some predictions for you. The developer release version of the headset will be $3,000 with your $99 subscription. The actual consumer product will be out within a year at $1,500. I have no facts for any of these. Uh, there will be a Mac Studio M2 and an Ultra. Um, and I'd like them to fix the power buttons because I hate the power buttons. There is no iMac coming. There are 13-inch MacBooks. Uh, iOS uh, 17 um, will feature lock screens, home automations, and a redo of the wallet, which is a disaster nowadays. A Mac 14 will be called Santa Monica. Again, remember, this is based on no information at all. And I am desperate for them to redo Stage Manager. Uh, I can't think of anything else other, a few other things, but they will fix some of the watch stuff, but only for the Ultra. Okay, John. This year's an especially interesting year to me because there's so much hype for the headset that I know a lot less about the other operating systems and what updates they'll be. And those are the ones I'm personally more interested in. I don't see myself getting a headset anytime soon at any price. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see that if there is a headset announced, I think my biggest question is what's the interface because where Apple's really changed the game most frequently is having a new interface for old computing paradigms, whether it was the GUI, um, popularizing that or, you know, using things like a mouse, just simple things like that up through the touch based iPhone screens. Um, what's going to happen? How do you control a headset? Because if it's Siri, Siri current state is not that strong they might be using some sort of um, generative AI to understand your commands going into a Siri type interface with your voice? Uh, or is it going to try to recognize your hand gestures, which there's no one who's ever successfully done that in a way that really um, has been able to sell in volume. So I'm interested in interface and uh, operating systems. Go ahead, Alex. I, Alexander. For years, I've been wanting Apple to give developers the capability to create their own watch faces. For one reason, I would love to see this 1980s Casio watch face on my Apple Watch. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> Mitchell. Oh, I mean, the headset sounds interesting, not too interesting to me. Um, I'm just hoping that they'll give us a roadmap to the uh, Apple Silicon, which would affect uh, developers. And I'd like to know when that Mac Pro is coming out. It doesn't look likely it'll be here uh, with WWDC, but I'd sure like to know when down the road because I've got to retire my old cheese grater. And Bill? I do think Nigel might get lucky with a new uh, studio. Uh, I think that form factor makes it uh, refreshable. Very. I'm just looking for two things. Number one, I'd like them to surprise me, truly. So we've seen a lot of uh, potential leaks the ar goggles and a whole bunch of stuff i i love it when they just do something that nobody has talked about that is major and kind of transformative we haven't had one of those in a long time and i'm looking forward to maybe as to the naming thing which is my most interests uh i'm voting for either uh os trucky or even better than that would be os rancho bernardo because that's where i live now and there's a huge apple facility kind of stealthily down the road from me alex I'm voting for Occidental. <laughs> I think Occidental or 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 Fresno. Fresno. Oh, I think I think I think Mac OS Fresno would be great. 
I am looking forward to, so I, I mentioned the watch, um, some things of just like organization and sim- simple. I'm a very functional person, if you all haven't noticed. And that's just, it would just help ease of use. I use my watch every single day. I've now been even actually like using it for shooting. So when I'm shooting videos, I'm using the camera as a remote. Uh, I don't know if we'll see anything there, but just the the fitness and the health um, side of it, definitely looking forward to that there. I am also highly interested in the headset. Um, one, because I'm in a lot of communities um, with VR enthusiasts and those in that space. Um, But I also have a lot of friends who are in that space and seeing how this could help to accelerate a lot of the work that they've been doing for years. Like it's not something new, but we do know that whenever Apple like leans in in a certain space, then people's ears pick up. Um, so we'll see what that will do for consumer impact because it's it's still not, headsets are still that, that whole space, the VR, AR, and people understanding use cases. Most of my friends that are in the space are doing it more from a B2B side of things. So to see where that, that B2C um, business to consumers, how that will impact so impact the industry. Courtney? I'll jump back into Apple as my primary uh, work-a-day computer when they come out with OS Cucamonga. I'm waiting for that. And look, Alex, I, I have a, a watch face with real-time secondhand uh, all the time. All the, all the, time. I, I, the secondhand is available. It's, the, it's a digital readout of the seconds is what I need. Oh, I see. I have that too. Next. Uh, well, sorry, let's get into the questions. Roscoe Jones is up first from Madison, Indiana. Why should Apple adopt rich communication services to be more iMessage-like with Android phones? And why should it stick with its own kind and not adopt RCS? Alexander. Well, I feel like if Apple really wanted to implement this, they would have done it by now. I. You know, iMessage is great when you stay within its ecosystem. Message threads between uh, multiple iMessage users are great. One of the things as an iOS user that drives me absolutely crazy is because I have a few family members that are on Android phones and message threads between iOS with, you know, I between iMessage and SMS, it just becomes really, really ugly, really fast. So yes, it would actually probably make my life a lot easier and less frustrating to deal with, but I don't see any reason why Apple would really care enough to do it. John? I suspect Apple already can integrate RCS, and they choose not to because it's a worse experience for their customers. And secondarily, they're holding onto it in case they need it as a bargaining chip for any sort of um, lawsuits from the U.S. government about not being open. And go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think there's been rumors that they're going to have to adopt support for RCS. Uh, they've had, they have now admitted that the uh, iMessage is a means of keeping you, uh, retaining you within their hardware. Um, and I think the thing that would force them to do it is the EU has much more strict uh, anti-competitive business laws than we do here in the United States. And uh, they may pass a law that say that all messaging phones sold in the EU must support RCS. And when that comes to pass, then you might find uh, Apple producing at least a special phone for the EU market. 
that will support it. But I don't think that's going to work unless you can support it worldwide because messaging between countries is going to get all fouled up if it uh, if it supports RCS in, in some uh, countries and only supports iMessage in other countries. So it's a, it's a sticky problem, kind of like the USB-C debacle of uh, them having their proprietary connection, which... Uh, the EU sees as anti-competitive and monopolistic, and they tend to outlaw things like that to keep everybody on a level playing field. Go ahead, Alex. Uh, the chances of RCS being supported by messages in, in the next decade is pretty low. Um, maybe, uh, you know, but the, the reality is if you actually look at the true penetration of RCS as a messaging, as, as being used in a messaging platform as a percentage of the number of people in the world actually using a, a platform with RCS, it's very, very, very low. <laughs> like, you know, so it's not, it's hardly a standard at this point. Um, and so I think that that, you know, Google would like us to think that everybody but 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 Apple's using it, but that's really not the case if you look at WhatsApp and a lot of other things. Um, and so, so it's really not a, um, it's not a standard. So there's not really any, it's, it's going to be very hard for someone to push against that just yet, maybe somewhere in the future. Um, for Apple, it lowers their ability to innovate. Now they now have to work about how do we make this work with RCS as opposed to we can do whatever we want inside of messages. Um, and so right now they're left with, we can do whatever we want and we're not spending any time or effort on on SMS. And that's just the way that they have it there. And so there's not really any, Apple would only you know curtail their ability to innovate their own platform by supporting an outside um, thing. You, you basically always wanna commoditize what you can't control and then control and commoditize what you're not making money at or you can't control and then and then um, control everything else you know as a company and uh, so there's no there's no reason that they that they would want to get into another market there um, the thing that worries Google the most and why we see a lot of PR around it is that uh, somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of kids under 18 are using iPhones. And I can tell you talking to my, my kids that the green bubble is the reason um, there is, and that's why people talk about it a lot. But in the United States, it is a it is an absolute standard. And, and you know, kids that don't have blue bubbles often get left out of a lot of conversations because they kind of ruin, as was stated before, ruin the conversation by having the green bubble in there. And so it's, um, there's very little other peer pressure around what technology you have except for that. Um, and it's been extremely effective at that at the younger ages uh, to a level that Google is very concerned because that is their future market. And it's it appears in the United States to be evaporating very quickly. Mm, Harshid. I'm going to take a step back and look at it in a maybe more American way because both companies are American, right? And with the colors, lose the colors, guys. I mean, some people are colorblind anyway. So why don't we just go black and white? You send a message, you receive a message. Because we have so much fragmentation. People want to signal and went to other little offshoots to, you know, be more private. And I feel that when you have RCS or whatever you want to call it, you could call it any letters, but the implementation of communication is the most important key. So if I had a really, really important message to send to Liberty, I don't want this, well, I couldn't get it because this is different. If it is the way, it need, if a message gets sent, do what you need to do on your own end. It doesn't have to be adopt RCS or whatever you do, but make it where it's all inclusive because at the end of the day, a person's going to choose what they want to choose. It doesn't matter if it's Android or iPhone, they're going to buy what they are going to be able to afford. So, you know, you might have a uh, SE, you might buy an SE just because of affordability on the Apple side or on a Pixel side, you might buy 7A. But at the end of the day, you know, we have people in India that are using Android. You have people in Egypt using Android, South Africa, Cape Town, Zambia, everywhere. And the communication is important. So as Alex alluded to, uh, you know, the green bubble, red bubble, the bullying is happening more. Kids are losing 
the ability to, you know, communicate to each other. And then, come on, we went through the whole pandemic, so we should have learned quite a bit of communication that we need to be stronger as a, you know, as United States of America rather than, you know, company against company. Because look at what Amazon's also done. Amazon's fragmented the whole Play Store and, and Amazon Store, and the only app that they use is what, Kindle? And so the reason why Google doesn't get that stride or whatnot, it's all the other players are fragmenting the whole idea of what you know business might be. At the end of the day, we all use Google. Why? Because it's a search engine. And we all constantly keep using it, but then we say, oh, we hate Google, we hate Android, or we hate this, we hate that. But why are we using it? So, yeah, you're going to make your own, you're going to make innovation happen. But why can't we allow innovation to happen within America, within our own companies that communication doesn't die because people don't know how to communicate these days and you know as far as dictation is concerned or um you know you have voice typing and all these other factors of, of communicating or emojis we all using emojis in different fa facets right we might use mm -hmm. a, emojis on windows or whatnot so i think we need to really critically look at that what we're doing to our environment in america go ahead bill uh, i some of the things Alex said kind of struck with me, and it's a for me, it's always been a combination of are you encouraging universality or are you cur uh, encouraging innovation? Um, and I, this is we're talking about text messaging basically, but it's not that far from XML, the the universal language of control and things like that. And for me, when Apple turned a little left and instead of using standard XML, used FCP XML because of Final Cut Ten. They did it for a particular reason. There were constructs in Final Cut, the magnetic timeline and things like that, couldn't be described accurately enough in standard XML. So they had to extend XML to allow these new functions. If you don't allow that, then everybody's stuck with standard timelines and nobody can innovate beyond that. And I think that holds the industry back. I'm sensitive to both sides of this, but I like the fact that Apple wants to keep their tech system as able to innovate as possible, and they're willing to be less compatible for that, because I think those investments move the whole industry forward a little bit faster. Alex? Yeah, I just don't see any upside for Apple. <laughs> like, I just don't see it. Like, I don't see it. Like, we can do it. I mean, but it'll have to be an EU kind of thing before we see anything happen. But I just don't think the e I think the EU is swallowed off. I mean, they're going to, uh, I think, that there's a high probability that the EU forcing outside stores on the iPhone is going to have a lot of blowback for the EU. Um, I think that there's going to, and I think Apple is going to rub their nose in it. And I think that that's going to make it very hard for them to move forward in the future um, because what, what they did there was a pretty big mistake. And they're going to find out really quickly why when we start seeing uh, more viruses and so on and so forth and scams that go on on the outside ones. And Apple will be sure to publish that that's happening and that they're creating that and it's going to make them look bad. You know, I mean, the USB-C thing was just silly. <laughs> like, it's like a format. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a universal standard that is not universal. Like, you don't know what cable you're plugging into, and they were already, you know, everybody's already moving past it. So we're gonna, you know, now, now when we actually have better cables, it'll take a decade to be able to actually use them in in the EU because we they made a law about something that is really, you know, past its prime. And Nigel, I think this is setting strategy by looking in your rearview mirror. And if, if that's the way you want to steer your business, that makes sense. And I think that's why they're being forced into some of these things, because people are looking backwards, not forwards. Someone in Apple has a copy of the basic strategy plan for iOS 20 and 21. And they're looking at something that we probably can't even imagine yet. 
And that's where they're focused. That's where they're fixed. That's what they're thinking. They sometimes will take short-term strategic uh, or tactical plans to keep people at bay. But there's a bigger game, and Apple's playing a much bigger game, and all of this is just short-term noise. And Alex? The only thing I also say is that the uh, amount of uh, patience that American companies have for the EU is waning. If you saw what OpenAI said, is like, if we can't make this work, maybe we'll just drop out of the U- European Union. And that is not, that that is a fire across the bow of like, we've had it. <laughs> you know, like we don't, you know, we're, we're going to make a decision about whether we're making global decisions. They're, they're only 10% of the market for most of these companies, 10 or 15% of the market. And we may see either forks for them or that that basically drive a black market and damage their retailers, damage their entire the, the entire infrastructure. But I think you're going to start seeing American companies push back on the EU. They're just not large enough of a market for them to just keep on changing their entire business model for them. And the results, wanted to share that from our last poll. So 45% of our community says that they are looking forward to the AR VR headset. 22% and looking for, are looking forward to the iOS 17 updates and 18% looking for iPad OS and then 13% looking for Mac OS. And yeah, let's go to the next question. Next one comes to us from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. Call your shot. Will headset pricing be announced? And if so, at what cost? His bet is $17.99 US dollars. Nigel. Yeah, I've already said that I think, like Alex, this will be a $3,000 uh, product uh, when, in, when, uh, when announced today with your 99 developers fee. I don't know whether it be like the original uh, Apple Silicon, you're like, I have to give it back at the end of it. But I, th- I don't, I think they're going to try and price this out of most of us hands. They don't want us in our hands. They don't want the bad press that will come with that. They want this in developers' uh, pause for the next year or so. I think the more interesting question is what price do they want to make the consumer version? So that, that will be a mixture of how much are they willing to make and how much are they willing to, you know, break to make this. Uh, a mass product, given that they are not first in the market. And again, I think I think that price point somewhere around $1,500. Go ahead, John. Global did a spaces on Twitter last night. They talked about two versions coming out. The latest, the latest rumor I got off of Twitter was Apple XR supercharged by dual X1 chips, 12 camera system, stunning 8K XDR optics, at all for $1,999. That's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. Is that your call too, or are you just sharing reference? I'm just. I'm just reading this off of Twitter. Okay. Okay. Bill. Well, that was my peg on Thursday when I mentioned uh, my guess was 19.99, but it's not so much the 19.99. It could be 24.99. My guess is that the last price, when it gets to a retail product, will definitely end in 99 because that's important in the retail world. Everybody understands that if you can ratchet down the number next to you, there's no reason not to. It's just a one dollar difference not to do that. So I think that'll come into play. Uh, but I, I, I think Nigel is convincing me that this may be a big number, just a 3,000, because we're not going for you, Mr. Consumer. This is an internal play for the developers. Go ahead, John. The last time Apple gave a developer version, it was a very low-cost M1 um, 
Mac Mini, and it was only like $500. So it was actually lower cost than the standard machine. So if anything, if it's a developer program, you might need to prove you're a developer or have a use case that you're trying to build out for it. And then you could, I would still expect it to be pretty reasonably priced. The reason why I think it's going to be I don't one. I don't think the price will be announced today. I think they're going to have a bigger event to go with more through the specs for consumers closer to release. I suspect it won't be released until late this year, if if this year, um, even possibly into next year. And so I think seventeen ninety nine because Apple tends to price things at either one, two, or three dollars per day, depending on who they're marketing it towards. And if you're thinking this headset will last for about three years, um, two dollars a day at three years is right in that two thousand dollar price range. And I could see them saying starting at seventeen ninety nine for a version that you want to pay for upgrades for go ahead alex i'm gonna guess 24.99 um you know and i think that the 3000 floated uh was definitely to create some room that they could come up under so i think that i think it'll probably be a little less than the 3000 but maybe not um I, if it was me i would have put more performance into it and made it five thousand dollars <laughs> but but i think that you know because i just i just think people haven't seen what's possible with vr um i think the only problem with that would be that, that developers would build things that were not possible on those consumer sets headsets and so um so i but i think that um, people really need to see what's possible with the um the more powerful systems uh, we, we we've seen toys so far like everything that you've seen released compared to things that i've seen in labs are toys you know and and so hopefully apple's going to put out a professional headset that we can actually see what's possible. And Courtney? I'm going to say $29.99 because you have to take into consideration if it's going to be a consumer product, you know, at consumer price like $17.99, uh, first of all, you have to realize that Apple on all their hardware works at about a 40% profit ratio. So unlike most other manufacturers like Oculus and so on. And the problem is uh, if to sell it as a loss leader, in other words, with a very thin profit margin on the hardware, and from if it is has what uh, Preto described as all those cameras and all that processing and the batteries to power it, uh, it's going to be a fairly expensive unit to manufacture. And the only way they could sell it at a low price was if they're going to make their money back on software sales that only work with that particular device, like Sony did with the PlayStations. You know, they sold those PlayStations for as, at a loss because they're going to make it back on all the games that they're charging 40 or 50 bucks a piece, 70 bucks a piece for down the line. So if there were a rich gaming market that supported this device, then I could see a lower price consumer market. A unit. But right now, I think it's going to be a developer edition. They may make it available to developers to try and garner some development to generate that uh, uh, depth of gaming or something, which Apple has never had before. So to try and break into the gaming market uh, with games written specifically to run on this AR, VR type device uh, is going to be a big uphill push. Uh, and I don't know how many uh, game manufacturers are going to want to jump on that wagon with a very limited market right now. Bill? One other persistent rumor I've been hearing is that they're going to do a new trade-in program for people with existing hardware. And I, it came across my radar because it said specifically everybody's talking about a 16-inch MacBook Air possibly being released today. And if they do that, they were saying that people who had bought into the last generation, the 14-inch MacBook uh uh, MacBook Airs that have the M2 series chips that you could get an almost full price trade in for that because they're encouraging people to do to the move move to the newer models. So for developers, I can see there being a lot of sense to that, getting them to getting even the smaller developers to rev their hardware as fast as possible. 
So originally I was thinking like, I was with Courtney, like the $29.99, somewhere in that ballpark. But then when I look at the fact that the Quest is what, $4.99 and and from some of the comments from you, Padalus, I'm like, let's do some math. Would they triple price-wise? So I I have two numbers. So I'm, I'm like $15.99 and then $29.99 and that's on record. So we'll see what comes of that. Alex? I think anything under 2000, it would really would feel more like a consumer play, which I don't think Apple is interested in right now. So I think the reason we may see something at 2000 or higher is specifically because I don't think that they're trying to impress the consumers at all. Um, I think that they, they, I think they should charge, I think they're going to charge what it costs them to make it, you know, and plus some to make sure that it's comfortable for them. It's really for the early adopters. There's, we have to remember there's 30 million registered uh, developers for the Apple ecosystem. So they, they've, got a, they've got a large enough market to support them releasing 500,000 to a million a year um, easily. Um, and the, those, the benefit for those developers who get into it early is mostly that they get to build, the, they get to build for the new platform um, that Apple is pushing for. I, I'm going to predict that you're going to probably see a list of uh, well over a couple hundred uh, large companies that have already adopted the the development for the platform. Um, you'll probably see demos from my guess is three to five Fortune 100 companies showing how they're going to use it, um, and that's going to help kind of build up the developer's interest in the in the product. Is showing that there's a lot of big people moving on this, and you're either going to be you know in the bus or under the bus. And Nigel. Yeah, John made a good point about the developer's edition of the original uh, Mac Silicon, but I think that was a very different case. Here, there, they were looking for mass adoption. Here, what they're looking for, I think, is they'd like mass adoption, but they really need good examples. And I think what, what they were probably panicked about was making the price too low, either so they would lose money, or that they'll, they would be too clearly competing with Oculus. I don't think they want to get into that. I think they want to have another conversation. Uh, that's bigger than that. And so that's going to require, I think, limiting the access to the technology to people who are fundamentally developers. Also, if you just listen to Alex's numbers, sometimes we forget how big a business this is. If they sold a million of these things at $3,000 a time, you know, they're a top 500 business. I mean, it's just, it's the scale is just huge. And Harshid. I kind of find it silly that you guys are even bringing Oculus in the story. But anyway, the biggest reason also that I think that this might be even uh, priced a little bit more decently is it offers accessibility. So having AR, VR and stuff in different case case points. So it's going to, they're, they're not, as Nigel is saying, the strategy is different. They're trying to solve problems with this device, not uh, trying to acquire a market because the whole Intel M1 shift has already happened and the, and the adoption of users already in the ecosystem because you see that we've gone from M1, M2, M3. And so when we look at the uh, headset at this point, it's going to solve issues and problems that we've had with not having a, you know, having one phone screen or having a monitor or whatnot. So this gives you a little bit more flexibility, but at the end, end point, it also, it does bring access to others. And Alex? I was going to say, I think they are, I think Hashid's right. They're, they're trying to solve a lot of problems. I just think they're trying to solve those in 2025. Uh, what they're doing right now is just laying groundwork uh, for, for a solution that, that we will see at a more affordable cost, but uh, two years from now. 
and just sharing again we've got so many amazing polls and thank you everyone for participating in them uh, our next one was or the last one that we just did was just asking you what do you think about the price points so 85 percent of you said over 1500 and then 10 percent said anywhere between a thousand to fifteen hundred five percent five hundred to about a thousand and no one was in <laughs> there was zero results for anything under 500 so we'll see we'll join you join us in after hours so we'll see what happens next question next one comes to us from joe kidd in the bay area california should apple release an ar vr product today how large is the opportunity for studios to re-release 3d versions of their titles for purchase on itunes could catalog content be augmented with solid and sold with depth effect thanks alex maybe now here's here's the problem is that uh, in the VR world, so the good news is, is that the Netflix app and some of the movie apps are some of the most popular things on Oculus and other things. So people like to watch movies there um, to do that. You do get more framing. It just feels more framey in a Oculus headset uh, than it does in the real world. And so you just have to kind of take that into account. Um, some people don't notice that, people like me do. <laughs> so, so it drives us a little crazy. Uh, I think you're gonna see a huge push for stereo 120. And the result of that is, is that a lot of the content, when this actually goes out to the consumer, remember, today is not a consumer headset. You're not going to see the, you know, movie companies do not have a reason to, to re-release everything uh, to this headset this, this year or, or maybe even next year. By the time it comes out, you may see an enormous amount of production and examples that are running, you know, 180 degree 120 or 120 stereo. And when you see that, you're going. You know, remember that Apple bought Next VR, so that, that this is a company that did 180, um, 180 stereo footage. And you're going to see sports. You're going to see, um, you know, a lot of other things that are all shot with that. Um, I will predict that true stereo, 120 frame per second, you know, 6K per eye will ruin people's experience of watching traditional movies in their headset because you're gonna be used to something that feels and looks very real. And when you watch the movie, it's gonna feel very framey. Uh, anytime you watch a lot of 120 frame per second footage, you go back to 24 and you just feel like you've gone back to the 20s. <laughs> we were in the 20s, but I'm talking about the 1920s. <laughs> so, which is when they created it because they were too cheap to have, use any more frames. So anyway, so the, um, so we, I, I just don't think that, I don't think that those movies are gonna be nearly as competitive as they seem right now. People are gonna be looking for new, new content. Courtney? Yeah, I don't think uh, that if they have the 3D versions on the shelf that they already produced 3D versions for movies that were released about four or five years ago when 3D was, there was a big push for 3D in theaters. And uh, the Blu-ray 3Ds was an awful failure. And so they're not going to want to go back. Once burned, I think the studios, uh, who a lot of them got burned on 3D releases for Blu-ray. And I don't think they're going to want to dip their toe back into that uh, mess again. Uh, for a single product that offers, you know, a high resolution 3D viewing experience. Um, I just don't think they're going to once burned twice shy. So I don't think they're going to dip back into that market. They may try and get some uh, more mileage out of going back into the vault and pulling out those 3D conversions that they did on movies in the past. But I don't think they're going to be creating new 3D versions off of conventional movies that are new releases coming up because it's just too small a market. And Harshid. So this is speculation, but with lessons learned, uh, we've all seen what happened to Google Glass, and they went for the professional market, right? So 
it failed. So we know Apple looks at those little tidbits of where failures or where things have happened. This is why I think consumer side, it's more lenient towards that market because again, you had your watch and your watch now got better, right? You had the ultra watch, you could do all these swimming and this and that. So we need to tie things together. We've already got your wrist. We've already got your phone. You've already got your TV. You already got your monitor, uh, monitor screen for your computer. Now let's grab your eyes so you could immerse all of those together. That's why I feel the consumer side is a little bit more prevalent as a mar uh, business strategy for them compared to the professional side where, sure, people will use them, but if the users of the product, like if the customers use it, then they could make stuff. So when it comes to, like you say, in the 3D and all these other aspects, maybe that's later down the road. But I feel that even with the process of uh, what people create, it's it's building the market of those creators, right? And then once you build that ecosystem, people will make stuff for the VR and AR and all that stuff. So I think it's still a little bit more consumer driven, I believe. Next question. Next question comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. What do you think we'll see in the 15-inch MacBook Air? And why don't we have a 15-inch MacBook Pro anymore? Nigel? So I think the heart of this question is the Apple Silicon strategy and whether they can clean up what is a very complex and even more confusing roadmap. And, and I hope that, and I don't know about the 15-inch, I'd like to see a 13-inch. I think there may be some updates. I think, I think what would be much better, and probably this may not be the time to do it because it's going to take more time, is a cleanup of the roadmap. So there's coherency around the processes and the products. And if this is a good time to start, that, that's great. John. If you had asked me a couple of weeks ago, I would have said I don't think they're going to release a 15-inch MacBook Air. But um, one, is the summertime, which is a time when students are starting to buy for the upcoming school year. Last year, they released the M2 MacBook Airs. So I think Apple really likes introducing the new M-series chips in their low-level, low-line products like the MacBook Airs or Mac Minis. So I would not be surprised to see that anymore. I think what we'll see in it is something very similar to what we have today potentially with an M3. If they have an M3, I'd be surprised if they introduce it at WWDC just because of the length of the announcement. Um, but that's what I would expect to see is targeted at especially students with an M3 chip. And John, I'm sorry, Bill. <laughs> that's okay. Um, I'm an owner of one of the reasonably new M2 MacBook Airs. And I have to say, uh, it said 14 inches. The Screen density and clarity of this thing is stunning, and it doesn't feel as small as it is. So I think when they get up into talking about a 15 or a 16, you know, the bezels are smaller now. The picture, the the screens are brighter and bigger uh, just in terms of the amount of the body of the laptop they pull in. That has been a very good working environment for me, more than I suspected when I bought it. I thought it was just going to be a simple thing to put in the voice booth to, because it's fanless, but I'm really impressed. So I think as their screen technology continues to improve, I am less critical about the size of the actual laptop and diagonal measure. It's doing the job for me really well. And John? Yeah, on the phones, the Pro and the standard line have different screen sizes. They have two sizes for each model number, so I expect the same in laptops as well. So Pros would be 14, 16, and uh, Airs would be 13, 15. Next question. Laura Thompson in Beaumont, Texas. Apple's keynote will have audio description in addition to, cap uh, to captions and ASL. Does Apple just value inclusion, or is it more than that? Alex? It's just, it's, it's 
it's in their DNA. I mean, Apple has really um, looked at this market as an important market from a, for a long, long time, and they, I can, you know, they spend a lot of energy. There is a a couple people there that are very important that really, really focus on this and and want to keep on pushing it forward at every moment. And so you'll, I think, every time they think they can do something st in a stable way, they're going to keep on adding accessibility features to it. They're probably one of the companies that is is the most on the forefront of of accessibility features uh, within their uh, with within the entire line of devices, as well as their broadcasts. Harshid, I think it's uh, more so to say that they think of every uh, group of people, right, in the disability space. So you might be blind, so AD might work for you. ID is another phrase that's used, which is interpretation um, description. So I feel that they look at each space because each space gives them value. So when the watch, you could put your hand over the watch to do, you know, enter a call and stuff, it's all about that inclusivity within the products that they sell. And so I feel that they have a kind of nose on every part of your disability and they're trying to improve it so that i think it's not a uh, you know because people ask for it it's just because um people want to have a uh, a equal opportunity right so i feel that they, that they're just looking at it as a whole and that's part of their as, as alex said it's part of their whole uh, ingrained um policy or whatever you want to call it so next question Next one comes to us from Stuart McIntyre. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm wrong about that. Richard Bullman in Defiance, Ohio. Will Apple release their own tools for AR VR development, or will they support and or encourage Unreal and Unity on their hardware? Go ahead, Alex. I think they'll support it. I think that they were actively encouraging uh, Unreal until Epic picked a fight with them, um, which was kind of a as I've said in the past, a really unfortunate uh, choice you know, on Epic's side. Uh, so a lot of us thought that Epic was kind of the, the, the you know, given solution until they, until they got into a lawsuit uh, battle with Apple. Um, then we haven't seen them since, oddly enough. Um, and so a lot of us thought maybe they would, they would pick Unity, but there hasn't been a lot of overtures in that area. So I think that they're going to make sure that they have the act, both companies have access to the tools that are necessary but I think Apple's probably going to go its own way and have its own internal development tools that you can use in addition to uh, the tools there. So I think that um, you're, you're seeing a platform that they've been slowly building out for a while um, if in, in a lot of the things that they're building. And I think you're just going to see that continue to develop and as they build more and more tools on top of it. I don't think that they will make it exclusive to their tools, but I think that they're going to primarily focus on their own development tools to make that happen. Next question. Next one comes to us from Stuart McIntyre in the UK. Lots of discussion about the new Apple AR VR headset being a platform for Apple to finally get back into serious gaming. And he says, for example, driving sims, flight simulators, and so forth. Can Apple do that? Or is their culture simply incapable of making this a success? Courtney. Uh, no, I don't think it's going to... to uh, um create a, a new surge in gaming for the Apple platform because the reason the Apple platform hasn't been very big in gaming is because of its uh, closed off area and it's not a large enough market to aim at for the big games to to uh, consider to go through the effort uh, and the expense of developing for a small market platform that is exclusive. And that's the problem is, especially once they get into this AR VR headset, it's, they're probably going to keep it proprietary and exclusive, and they're not going to make it an open, I doubt they will make it an open type platform that is interoperable with other platforms. 
Uh, so uh, development of games specifically for this very small market, it's not going to be worthwhile to most game developers. And unless Apple pours a lot of their money into original game development by Apple for Apple, uh, I don't think you're going to see a lot of titles available for this platform. Alex. I think Apple most likely will pour a lot of money into game development <laughs> with their own titles. They have our Apple Arcade. They've already been building that up. Um, that, that slides directly into it. And what it does is it protects Apple. It's not like they're doing something new where they're going to now start paying developers to, to do something. They've already built that platform and built that entire pipeline. So being able to invest in games in those areas, I think, um, is something that Apple probably will do pretty heavily. I expect to see a big uh, push in that area. I think it's definitely a place that holds people into that process. Um, I don't think that they need to go after the traditional game titles. I think they're going to go. They're going to be looking for new game titles because I don't think that the. I don't know how many of the current games are really going. You know, you can take an, an old game like Halo and put it in to try to put it into something like that. But you really want to develop for the platform and, and with mixed reality, where you're having some things that you can see through, some things that you're doing on your own. A lot of those things are are things that you want to build games that are built for that. So I don't think they're going to try to get. A, a lot of large game developers to do that. I think they are going to do a lot of their own development. John? It depends what you mean by serious gaming. Apple is by far the largest gaming company in the world, and the games that make the most revenue are all on iOS. Um, are they casual? Yes. Are they pick up and put down? Yes. Are they AAA? No. Those are different types of games, and the question is, how will Apple approach the gaming market for this device? And and I think I, I I just want to correct that a little bit is is that I believe that the the desktop game the the desktop and, and and console gaming market is about three times bigger than the casual gaming market at the current in, in currently I believe that there's about eighteen billion towards sixty billion so I think that it's a but it's still I mean you're right that it's a huge market and it's one of the it's much it's growing yeah but much how many faster. game producers make more money than Apple does on a game well uh, well uh, it, Apple make I mean not Apple but if you look at game producers that are, um, there are, you, Apple's making all that money on lots and lots of little games. Um, some of these games that are making, if you look at Call of Duty and so on and so forth, they're doing pretty well. Now, right, individual games, it? sure. But what I'm saying is, as on the whole. Well, um, but Apple's taking only 30, 30% on a, on a percentage of that $18 billion market. I, I, we just want to make sure we get, we probably should check those numbers, that's all. Nigel. I think the last two conversations were both right in their own way. I, I think uh, dollar-wise, uh, Apple is not as big as the gaming market, which is, you know, the the uh, GPU-intensive business that, that exists on the PC. But I, I flew back yesterday from uh, beautiful Vegas, and as I looked around me in the plane, there were more people using iPhones to play games than anything else. So I think what Apple is trying to do is to get percentage of your time, not only percentage of your dollars. They want you on their devices uh, interconnected and connected as much as they can. And I think the casual gaming may not produce the revenue, but it produces the device time. And that's probably what where they're keeping focused. Bill? So for me, I'm not a gamer, and I don't. I, but I brush up against some people who are into it, and it seems to me that what they're always looking for, performance, they spend vast amounts of money on their gaming rigs. They are looking for immersive quality. I mean, no delays, and you see people with three or four monitors around them. And as soon as I thought about that in terms of gaming, suddenly I went, well, wait a second. We're all talking about them coming up with a truly immersive system perhaps today in some sort of headset. And I wonder if this is a long play that they see the future of gaming being that kind of immersive, head-worn 
environment where you can become the player far more than watching the player, that seems to me that's something that could be transformative in the game space if it really gets out there. Go ahead, Alex. And by the way, in my being argumentative a little earlier, I only play pretty much games on my phone. <laughs> so, so, I, so in my market, the casual gaming is, is, is uh, uh, rules, but, um, but I, I, you know, there's still a lot of people out there using consoles and PCs. And Alexander. I do play games on my iOS devices, but I will say as somebody who uses uh, a PlayStation quite often, I don't think I would, let's just take a popular game like The Last of Us, incredible story, incredibly cinematic. I wouldn't want to play that game on a tiny screen on my iPhone. I would really want to experience that in my living room, on my large screen TV. And I, I, I can't help but feel like that's an issue for a lot of AAA game titles. They're, they just look better on a bigger screen, and, and it's not worthwhile on a small screen. Next question. Next question comes to us from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. In the company's most recently reported earnings for the quarter ending April 1st, the Mac business shrank 31% from the prior year. What product will boost Mac sales? John? We might not ever see a quarter like last quarter because there was a big pent-up demand for uh, M processors in Mac Pro laptops. Courtney? Yeah, the only way to get that boost back is a new pandemic because that will increase sales again. And that's the problem that everyone is having. All the computer manufacturers are down this quarter and this year from last year because pandemic sales caused such a huge mountain of increase of people that needed to operate remotely uh, and and spending more time at home and figuring out how to keep the kids occupied uh, while they're spending time at home and remote learning, et cetera. There was a huge push for uh, everyone upgrading their home PCs and phones and communication devices. And that uh, now that the pandemic has waned, has waned uh, people are back to normal purchasing prices. And so there's naturally going to be a, a shrinkage from that previous surge. Uh, so I wouldn't look at it as a uh, completely downward trend that's going to last very long. It's going to level off at some point. And the only way to get back up to that peak again is to have something else that's going to force people back home again. Or, And unfortunately, since the last pandemic is so close to us that uh, most people have already upgraded. So they're all sitting on hardware that's only one or two years old. Uh, and so they're not necessarily in need of upping their game any next time we get pushed into the need to remotely operate. Alex. The M series is screaming fast and very quiet and very efficient and very cost effective. When that that what that meant is when it was released, a lot of people bought them. The problem now is is that they have something that will probably last them three to five years <laughs> because there's not a lot of apps unless they're a professional uh, video in video and 3D. There's not a lot of apps that are going to push those computers for a very very long time. Um, and so I think that that's the the fortunate thing for Apple as well. They dropped um, 30%, 31% in this market, uh, you know, in the, in the Mac market, doesn't really matter. <laughs> the, Mac, the Macs are kind of a, not, not maybe a little bit more than a rounding error, but, but not really a, a big part of their um, financial security. And Nigel. Yeah, if you think about the last couple of years, it's been uh, very interesting for the last three years to run a business. Uh, we had supply chain, uh, we, sorry, we had uh, COVID, pandemic, 
which caused a huge demand push. We had a supply chain because everybody ran out of supply. And when everybody got supply, we've moved into a sort of early stages of recession. So uh, uh, comparing numbers is, is really a joke at the moment because it's very hard to track how all these different influences have changed their business. I think what you've got to give Apple the credit for is even throughout that, they've really been on a straight line. I mean, they've kept focus. They've done relatively few detours, as it appears to me. They've not done what so many other companies have done, which is completely re-engineered their products. I've said earlier, I think they have some work to do to sort out the uh, the processor roadmap, but that that's part of the supply chain challenge. And producers, thank you so much for all of these questions. Please vote up or down so that we can make sure we get to them before we wrap the show. Next question. Jeffrey Powers, Madison, Wisconsin. Biggest problem with headsets are simply weight. They're front heavy and pushing on the nose. The Quest 3 is half the size as the 2. So how do you think Apple will have addressed these issues? Nigel? So I think that uh, the next generation of human will have heads that are downward facing because <laughs> everywhere I go, people sit like this. So I don't know what's going to happen to our necks in the future, but I can only believe that uh, Apple is trying to balance the weight of this thing as much as they can not to encourage that evolutionary trend. Courtney. Yeah, with solid state batteries being a thing now that uh, can be produced in different shapes, I think moving the battery to the headband, to the back of the headband to counterbalance the front weight of putting all the processor and with all the processor, the screens and the camera, et cetera, in the front to move the power supply to the back of the headband, since they're not going to be selling glasses where everything would have to be out front and the batteries could maybe be over the ears. Uh, I think they're going to try and move the batteries to the back of the thing so that uh, it'll, it'll take some of that weight off of your nose. Next question. Next one comes to us from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. Would Apple Maps be the first demo if they show a headset? Ooh, John. Absolutely not. Apple does not want people putting these on their heads and going for a drive. <laughs> right. Go ahead, Alex. I actually think we'll probably see it in the demo. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it'll be the first demo, but I think being able to explore locations before you go, uh, I think that's one of the reasons they built as much of the, of the mapping technology the way they have is definitely for the AR solution. And there could be an opportunity even in that, speaking to the experience, as you said, Alex, for, you know, just even marketing wise for businesses. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's so many opportunities. I mean, it, it really depends on, again, I think we're, we have to rem rem keep reminding ourselves that what we're going to see today is a developer edition and it's not designed for consumers. The reality is we don't know what's going to be useful and what's not. And developers are going to find that. But uh, eventually when it becomes more compact, uh, being able to walk into, let's say, uh, you know, a Taylor Swift concert and imagine walking into the Golden One Center and everything, when you put the goggles on, everything around you, you see everybody, you're still walking around, but there's this whole, uh, you know, AR experience that everything looks different than what it actually looks like in the real world, but it's all locked to that world. And, and if you see what Apple's been doing with the persistence and a lot of other things that are already built into the, um, into the, into the system and, uh, you know... Ultra wideband doesn't make a lot of sense until these headsets are out there. But, you know, I don't think you want to drive with them. But I think going to locations and wearing them and having these experiences is definitely on its way. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Could FaceTime be an early app used to drive AR headset sales? Are we ready to walk and FaceTime? 
Alex. I sure hope not. I, I, I do think that FaceTime is going to be a big deal. I just, I'm not that excited. I think the emojis has all been built for AR. So I think that all of our emojis, Apple, the one thing Apple did that seems to have eluded everybody else was building these kind of animated animo, emojis of, of ourselves that looks cooler than ourselves. All the other ones look dorky. You know, they're just like a dorky version of us. Um, and I think that uh, somehow Apple figured out a way that you that to build ones that look better than you you look in real life, or I look at, at least that I look in real life. And so, uh, so I do think that that's the to their advantage if they want to use it for FaceTime. And I think that was the primary use when they launched it. Um, but I but I think that I, I don't know how much I'm going to actually want to watch that. And Courtney, I would love to see a chart on number of deaths. Uh, of pedestrians and drivers caused by distracted driving of people uh, looking at their phones since the development of the uh, smartphone. Uh, because I think there's been a huge increase uh, in accidents uh, caused by distracted driving or distracted walking. Every time I look out, I look at people, pedestrians walking, about half of them are looking down at their phones or they're doing a FaceTime. Or they're, you know, they're, they're not looking where they're going. And if you put goggles on, you you may be able to see, you know, keep your head up to see where you're going a little better because it'll give you a, a, a heads-up display. But it's still limiting your peripheral vision because you've got goggles over your eyeballs and you're looking at a screen. And your screen only shows you what those cameras are showing you. So I think you're going to have some limited, uh, it's going to limit your perception and I think there's going to be a lot more people walking into telephone poles. Alex? You know, when we grew up, I can't, I can't, I was trying to find it to see if I could show it, but there was, I remember growing up and seeing a video of a guy wa reading his newspaper while walking on like Sesame Street or Electric Company or something. And, he, and he's walking through and he almost falls into all these things and he finally gets caught up in a revolving door. And so the distracted, drive, distracted uh, things have been happening for a long time. I do think there's a massive surge. Even before smartphones, uh, my father, uh, who's a lawyer, said if anyone brought a car accident to the um, uh, to him, the first thing he would do is subpoena people's uh, call records. Like it was immediately that was like the thing to make sure because he said if they were on the phone when the accident happened, they were liable. <laughs> like like they were going to be, he was going to win. You know, and so so this has happened. That was before smartphones. Um, so it is definitely a a risk factor um, and an insurance factor. And Harshid. Pay attention to augmentation. Uh, Heads-up displays have arrows and stuff in your car, and uh, this is the same type of technology, so pay attention to the augmentation space of that, especially with sound, and sound is going to keep people safe. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, WWDC. What are some ways to watch the keynote today? Viewing parties? Right Alex. Here. Uh, Twit, Twit will do it as well as us. So Twit is going to have, um, the, it's usually great commentary, uh, Leo and friends. I'm not sure who's, I think it might be Andy and, and uh, uh, Micah Sargent and potential. I, I think that those are the two. I think those are the two because I think that Jason is actually on site. Um, but my favorite place to watch it is in our own watch party. So uh, I uh, um, don't don't go to the other options. <laughs> I, I'll be hanging out at 10 o'clock uh, with everybody here in uh, in After Hours. 
All right. Well, thank you so much, producers, for your fantastic questions. We hope to see you in After Hours to our panelists. Thank you for your insights and your valuable share as today. And of course, our back-end production team, for without which this would not be possible. Tomorrow, we have typography with Kelsey Gray. And for the rest of the schedule, you can head over to officehours.global. And let's see how far we travel today from our questions. So we've got 73,601 miles, and that is 118,449 kilometers. That's more than 582 million bananas for scale. That's three times around the earth. Again, thank you everyone so much for watching, and we'll see you in After Hours. Bye. Excited about topography tomorrow. Talking about type, serifs, non-type, oh, kerning, letting, kerning, all the letting. big things will come up. Yes. Ligatures. Maybe even we'll get to drop caps. Maybe. <gasps> Serif. Serif. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.